Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the February 2024 edition of State of Distressed Debt. Part of the Fig Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst, Nagisa Baluku, and senior distressed analyst, Phil Brendel, each of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, Nagisa and Phil sit down with Abid Qureshi. Abid is a partner in Aiken's financial restructuring practice and the partner in charge of its New York office. Before we dive in, a request. We here at Fick Focus want to continue bringing you quality content and exceptional guests. We can't do it without you. So if you haven't done so already, please do follow, rate, comment, and share. It is greatly appreciated. So thank you. And on to the podcast. Phil, I mean, kind of a rock star close to 2023. But after that, January, kind of a giant shrug within high yield. I think, you know, the index was really just flat, returned zero. For the month and in the early goings of February here, kind of on the same trajectory, you know, year to date within the high yield index, I think we're wider by maybe three basis points uh, as of February 7th. And that's at a still super duper tight level of 326 basis points. Are we seeing anything different uh, in your landscape and distress and, and sort of how are the seasonal shaping up here? Yeah, no, it saw much of the same, although I, I do have to think uh, January was somewhat interesting because the nature of it is usually such a strong month. Uh, January and April tend to be the probably the two best months for credit. Um, and it, what we saw was that distress supply actually rose slightly. Um, it bounced back into our familiar range, and that's off of a, a low. It looked like it, there was a potential that it could break lower. Um, but that didn't happen. It bounced back. And, you know, I, 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 whenever I think about it, I think, you know, back to our conversation with Cheney uh, last month when, you know, he talked about how uh, the high rates are just creating distress across all sectors. And that's what we've sort of seen is that we just have a floor of distress supply. Um, these are really troubled names. And that we're as long as we have a high rate environment, I expect that floor, you know, some will get better, some will some will get worse, but you know it, it's going to keep uh, distress supply pretty elevated, and I don't think we're going to see any kind of fall. Realize distress ratios were seven percent at the end of January, which is pretty modest. Uh, recall that I typically like to see a distress peak of like twenty five percent, and we haven't even come close to that in this current cycle. It's only been as high as ten point seven percent. Yeah, no, it's been very interesting. I mean, I think one of the, the uh, you know, one of the question marks for me is, you know, and I was expecting some uptick and we've gotten a really good sort of start in terms of the new issuance calendar, which, you know, arguably can sort of help delay or, or sort of slow down sort of any kind of credit cycle. But it'll be interesting because I think, uh, you know, to your point, you know, at the bottom there, you just have names and some pretty significant issuers in that sort of distress cohort that just don't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. Do you see, uh, I guess, 
Are you just looking for sort of a churning sideways until we get some sort of catalyst or, or, or do you have something more specific in mind? Oh, very specific. I mean, you know, I, I, I've liked the results that we've gotten from following seasonals. I, and, you know, it kind of goes to, you know, I, I think, I think this, this idea that really funds are driving the pricing on all of these uh, uh, bonds and debt. Uh, and and so that you'll see the prices move higher even when fundamentals might be deteriorating, and uh, and so in in that with that in mind, March is a pretty bad month. Uh, that's the next one that I see that is a bad month. Uh, you know, it's been down its performance at least down for distressed names eight of the past ten years, and uh, you know, put it sandwiched between two good months, February and April. Um, generally speaking, it's a constructive that we are in the constructive part of the calendar. Um, May is really when things start getting, you know, falling, uh, credit fines, uh, get it, it loses its bid and, uh, things get worse during the summer months. But, um, March is what I'd be looking at near term, longer term. I, I don't anticipate that we're going to see, you know, the big distress surge that, uh, you know, some of us have been looking for. Um, but I, I think maybe that we could potentially see this summer. Yeah, I think absent sort of maybe some large sort of new geopolitical risk or, you know, alternatively something, uh, you know, that happens domestically, but with, you know, kind of 6% type deficit spending, it's hard to see too much of a macro slowdown, at least uh, through the election. But we'll see how things go. Well, with that, I uh, certainly appreciate your catching us up. Why don't we turn now to Phil and Nagisa's conversation with Abid Qureshi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this February edition of the State of Distressed Debt podcast. We're very happy to have here with us Abid Qureshi. Abid is a partner in Aiken's financial restructuring practice and the partner in charge of his New York office. He is a dedicated financial restructuring litigator and has litigated a wide variety of contested matters and adversary proceedings in large Chapter 11 cases, including PG&E, Travelport, Intelsat, Aeromexico, Revlon, and Diamond Sports, among many others. Abbott is regularly, regularly represents companies and debtors, creditors, bondholders, ad hoc groups, hedge funds, institutional investors, and official committees in both in and out of court restructurings. Avid, thank you for joining us today. Um, so maybe let's start with the current state of play in your practice. As a bankruptcy litigator, uh, what are you seeing as recent or evolving trends in bankruptcy litigation? So basically, what's catching your attention now? Well, Nikisa, thank you for having me. To answer your question, I, I'd like to take a step back. Um, although we often hear the term bankruptcy litigation, uh, I don't think that term accurately captures the whole picture. At Aiken, we have a, a specialized practice group that handles these disputes. We call it restructuring litigation. And that's important because these disputes are more than just bankruptcy disputes. Oftentimes, the same issues get litigated in, in bankruptcy court, uh, like avoidance actions, make holes, contract claims, and the like. Um, there are often issues that arise and are litigated uh, well before a Chapter 11 filing. Other times uh, that litigation commences pre-petition, there will be a bankruptcy filing in the middle of the litigation, and, and, and that process then needs to be navigated. Uh, but what we've seen over the years 
is that to effectively advocate for our clients in bankruptcy, you have to have the knowledge and the expertise to litigate both debtor-creditor disputes and intercreditor disputes that may precede a bankruptcy filing. Now, of course, the opposite is true as well. If you're engaged in a dispute with a distressed company, it's absolutely critical that you understand the implications of a bankruptcy filing. And a good example of this dynamic, uh, and to your question, a current trend in the restructuring space are so-called liability management uh, exercises or LMEs. So let's stay there then. Uh, We've heard and talked about liability management transactions on this podcast, including you're using a friendlier term here. Sometimes we also refer to them as credit or credit violence. But let's sort of start with the basics. Um, what are liability management transactions? And help us also get to the why, perhaps, or the what's the objective behind them. And also, who the different players uh, often are in these types of transactions. Sure. So these are generally transactions where a distressed company its equity sponsor, and typically a subset of its creditors and or external financing providers work within existing credit documents and the existing capital structure to improve the company's balance sheet. Oftentimes, uh, this involves companies that need additional liquidity um, or, uh, or need to engage in some sort of a deleveraging transaction. Uh, Now, I I said equity sponsor, but LMEs aren't necessarily limited to privately held companies. Public companies can also pursue uh, a liability management exercise as well, although more often than not, it it does tend to be a privately held company. Uh, Because a company considering this type of transaction is often facing a significant liquidity issue and may well be on the verge of assessing a Chapter 11 filing as one of its more viable other options. Um, Lenders are often going to be reluctant to provide new money on a PERI basis with existing debt. Uh, And as a result, these transactions frequently take the form of new money coming into the company along with either an up-tiering of existing debt or a drop-down of assets into a new subsidiary which in turn raises new debt and exchanges debt at the new subsidiary for the old debt held by existing lenders that are providing new capital at less than the par amount of the old debt. And and what this enables the company to do is to capture discount on the existing debt uh, in addition to raising new money to address the company's liquidity needs and give the company the additional runway that it might need. Uh, These transactions can often be coercive. Uh, They can result in a loss of priority and or a loss of security and a loss of collateral for existing creditors that either elect not to participate in the new money transaction or are not invited to participate in that transaction. Now, as uh, a restructuring litigator, this is an area that where I'm spending a lot of time both advising companies and advising lenders on the type of transactions. On the company side, companies, equity sponsors, as I mentioned, as well as their advisors, look at credit documents and explore the art of the possible to address the financial distress that they may be experiencing and to ensure 
as they evaluate all of their options, that this is one of them that, that is on the table. So they will look at, for example, under the baskets in their existing credit agreements or bond indentures, what assets they are permitted to move, uh, what the lien capacity is on the existing debt, how and with what level of consents any of their credit documents can be amended. Uh, the, the, the list goes on, but anything and everything is, uh, is considered. And at the same time, creditors of the distressed company will typically be doing the same thing. They're not going to sit around and wait for the company to reach out with the proposal. The creditors will typically also take a deep dive into their credit documents and explore creative ways to improve their position, which may or may not be to the detriment of their co-lenders. And often, uh, even before investing in a debt instrument in the secondary market, uh, funds are asking us to analyze what the art of the possible is in connection with an, an LME transaction, how anybody buying into that position might conceivably be hurt if they are not part of a group that is participating in such a transaction. And if they are contemplating participating in that kind of a transaction, what level of litigation risk the transaction has. Uh, in addition, there are lots of scenarios, particularly where there's a, a very large capital structure with multiple tiers of indebtedness, where there may be multiple creditor groups that are jockeying with one another to get to a deal with the company. And the company may try to play off one of those groups against another to figure out where it can get the optimal a new money transaction in order to get the liquidity and the runway that it needs. The last thing I would mention is uh, the equity owner, and oftentimes it's a private equity sponsor, can also play a role in these transactions. Given that equity will, of course, typically expect a zero recovery in a bankruptcy scenario, equity, equity sponsors may be particularly incentivized to take more aggressive actions to avoid a bankruptcy filing and to play out their option. As litigators, we are increasingly being brought in at a very early stage in the structuring of these transactions because understanding the litigation risks involved on, on both sides of, of these transactions is fundamental to, to finding the ultimate uh, solution and the right solution for the particular problem the company faces. A bit, uh, Phil here. So, so when do you think all of this really started picking up speed? Uh, note holders and lenders have always been aggressive against equity, even against other creditors ranked above and below them. But in the same class, that seems to be more of a recent phenomena. Yeah, Phil, I think that's generally right. Aggressive restructuring transactions are, are, are not new. Uh, debtors, equity sponsors, creditors have been doing this for a while. And when we think about LME transactions, as I just described, one of the first uh, that I certainly recall is J. Crew, which was in 2017. And in that same year, another one called Not Your Daughter's Jeans. Uh, are a couple of the earliest. But it probably comes as no surprise that there was a noticeable uptick in these types of transactions with the onset of COVID in early 2020, as um, everybody was scrambling both to, to get new liquidity 
and in addition to that, to understand where in their capital structures they could potentially look to in order to raise new indebtedness. We saw in very quick su succession similar liability management transactions uh, at Serta, at Trimark, and at Board Riders. Uh, and all three of those transactions, as you know, were subsequently uh, challenged in court. Now, those three, Serta, Trimark, and Board Riders, are also known as up-tier transactions. And in an up-tier, what happens is a majority of the existing lenders agree to provide new money under a new super priority loan while also rolling up their existing debt into new loans with either second or third out status. At the same time, the lenders who are not permitted to participate, they are relegated to a priority behind all of the new money and all of the rolled up debt. This of course can have drastic effects for the non-participating lenders who wake up one day to suddenly find that what was first priority debt is now all of a sudden subordinated and sits behind hundreds of millions of dollars of new debt. Now, although the incurrence of new indebtedness is typically prohibited by or strictly limited by existing credit documents, the way these transactions work is that a majority group will consent to amending the existing credit docs to permit the new indebtedness and sometimes those amendments will go even further, both to strip covenants uh, and or to amend the so-called no action clause to make it more difficult for those lenders that are left behind to challenge the transaction. Can you go into some detail on how a bare majority of lenders can make some of these dramatic changes that affect really the value of the, the loan? Sure. And of course, this is one of the issues that is often litigated, but the amendment provisions of credit documents typically permit modifications with the consent of creditors holding a simple majority of the outstanding principle of the debt. Uh, but these amendment sections, in addition, also include so-called sacred rights. Sacred rights are provisions that are considered so fundamental to the bargain that they cannot be amended without 100% consent of all of the creditors that would be adversely affected. Now into the bucket of sacred rights typically fall things like the rate of interest, the maturity date, um, things that have a, a, a very direct economic impact. A distressed company is not realistically going to receive unanimous consent to do anything. And so the goal when structuring a liability management transaction is to look for amendments that only require 50% and to get the transaction done without touching any of the so-called sacred rights. So let's maybe go back a bit to the more specific cases you mentioned, Serda, Trimark, uh, board writers. They were all challenged in non-bankruptcy courts, uh, at least initially. So let's start there and uh, go over a little bit what happened in those cases. Sure. So CERTA, why don't I start with that one? That is the only transaction that I'm aware of where the parties sought preliminary relief in the form of a TRO uh, to prevent the transaction from happening in the first place. That TRO motion was denied. Um, and I will add that in, in most of these cases, you don't see a TRO, both because oftentimes an important part of the transaction happens before it 
becomes publicly known. And so there is no opportunity to seek a TRO. And also because it is a very high standard in order to get a TRO. And that typically comes along with an opportunity, or I should say an obligation to post a significant bond, which which most creditors challenging these transactions will not be um, uh, will not be prepared to do. Uh, so uh, every transaction is different, but in every challenge at a minimum, you see the following types of claims. Breach of contract, first and foremost, uh, an allegation that either the credit agreement or the bond indenture has been breached, as well as breach of the so-called implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, which is an implied term under every New York law governed contract. And most of these credit docs are governed by New York law. Ultimately, what a court is faced with is this, a company and a subset of its creditors did something that is not expressly prohibited by the credit documents. And, and, and the question becomes, is it so egregious that there should be some sort of a remedy? And what we have seen over the course of the past four years is that state and federal district courts uh, have on a few occasions let the contract claims proceed past the motion to dismiss stage, but we have very little data, and as I'll get to, perhaps a little more to come very shortly, but very little data on how courts would ultimately view the merits if any of these went to trial. So let's take CERTA as an example. Um, uh, in, it, it, it initially, uh, CERTA began uh, in federal court and it was dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and the original state court action was voluntarily dismissed. But in the second set, uh, CERTA federal action, Judge Fela denied a motion to dismiss brought by the company and the supporting lenders. And, and that motion to dismiss uh, was denied both with respect to the breach of contract claim and with respect to the claim that the implied covenant had been breached. Now, if you read that decision, you get a sense that the court was struck by the apparent unfairness of the transaction to those lenders that were, that were left out. And if I could briefly read one quote from Judge Fela's decision, and, and I'm quoting from this decision that came down in March of 2022, which I think gets across how she viewed the transaction. And the quote was, one could reasonably conclude from plaintiff's allegations that defendant systematically combed through the agreement, tweaking every provision that seemingly prevented it from issuing a senior tranche of debt, thereby transforming a previously impermissible transaction into a permissible one. On these allegations, Plaintiffs have adequately alleged that the defendant deprived them of the benefit of their bargain in bad faith, close quote. So that sort of decision, and particularly that passage that I just read, has been much discussed in all of these LME situations and is particularly noticeable for the very broad interpretation of the implied covenant. The court found that a contract party can violate the implied covenant through the bad faith exercise of a discretionary right under the contract. Now that's significant. So in, in other words, what the court is saying is that even if the contract provides a party with the discretionary right to do something, and in the case of CERTA, that is the power 
to amend the contract, the implied covenant can be breached if that party exercises that right in a way that constitutes bad faith because it frustrates the other party's entitlement to the benefit of their bargain. Now, about six months after that decision came down in, in CERTA, a New York state court made a substantially similar ruling in the board riders case. In board riders like in CERTA, the breach of contract and the implied covenant claim were both found to have survived the motion to dismiss. Now, echoing what the federal court said in CERTA, the state court and board riders noted, and I quote, that an explicitly discretionary contract right cannot be exercised in such bad faith as to deprive the other party of the benefit of the bargain. And, and even more recently, we saw a breach of contract and implied covenant claim once again survive dismissal. Uh, this time, though, it was a slightly different uh, type of liability management transaction. This was in the Bombardier decision. And that decision came out just before uh, Christmas in 2023, so not very long ago at all. That decision um, is being appealed. That appeal, of course, is going gonna, is gonna to take some time. Uh, but uh, unless that case is settled, as many of these are before the appellate court rules, um, we will get some guidance from the New York Appellate Division on the scope of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. And that could well, if and when we get that decision, have a significant impact on how the market views these types of transactions. So all of this is happening outside of bankruptcy in primarily New York federal and state court. Uh, as is sometimes the case, these transactions don't work to prevent bankruptcy down the road. Uh, and the companies end up finding themselves in Chapter 11, and obviously Serta being the most glaring example in all of this. Um, so let's maybe stick with that. Uh, what happened with Serta filed for bankruptcy? And specifically, how did the Texas Bankruptcy Court approach these questions and challenges? Sure. So Serta is, of course, a very interesting case study because the liability management transaction was challenged both inside and outside of bankruptcy. Uh, and look, from a certain point of view, creditors uh, participate in a liability management transaction in order to enhance their recovery and improve their priority in the event that the company ends up falling down and filing for bankruptcy. That's really where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, with respect to these uh, transactions. So. The first observation I have about CERTA is that, as is very typical in most Chapter 11 case, cases, uh, things move very quickly. Most debtors tend not to age well in bankruptcy and uh, repeatedly put pressure on both the court and all of the parties in interest to emerge as quickly as possible. Uh, the CERTA cases were filed in uh, the end of January of 2023, and in the span of just two months, the parties briefed summary judgment motions on whether the up-tier trans transaction constituted a so-called open market purchase under the applicable credit agreements, and the, and the court heard oral argument and ultimately ruled from the bench that the contract was unambiguous and that the transaction was an open market purchase that was permitted by the credit agreement. That oral ruling came 
at the end of March. So in the space of approximately two months, there was summary judgment ruling, uh, summary judgment briefing, I should say, as well as a bench ruling. That alone would have taken a year or more in a typical New York state court docket. Um, next, roughly two months later, in connection with confirmation and a trial on the merits, the court ultimately found that there was no breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. And with respect to the implied covenant, Judge Jones, uh, or I should say then Judge Jones, uh, said the following in that sort of ruling, and I quote, liability management transactions may or may not be a good thing. Lender exposure to these types of transactions can be easily minimized with careful drafting of lending documents. While the result may seem harsh, there is no equity to achieve in this case. Sophisticated financial titans engaged in a winner-take-all battle. There was a winner and a loser. Such an outcome was not only foreseeable, it is the only correct result, close quote. So as you can see from that quote, um, Judge Jones had a very different perspective on the implied covenant and the role the implied covenant uh, plays than the federal court judge in Serta or the state court judge in Board Riders. So what we have here is a very clear statement uh, that the role of the implied covenant should be severely limited. Um, that uh, ruling is currently, I believe, on appeal to the to the Fifth Circuit. So uh, that is what what happened in in the bankruptcy court in uh, in Serta. You know, what I find really interesting there is easily minimized. I don't know if uh, lenders or their lawyers find it so easily minimized to uh, carefully draft the lending documents to avoid that. So, so uh, but given the diverging rulings and appealings, how should creditors and companies proceed when considering these transactions? Sure. So I think there are a few practical takeaways, at least with regard to the, the, the litigation uh, issues. So let me start with outside of bankruptcy. So outside of bankruptcy, New York state courts have shown a willingness to allow both core contract and applied covenant claims to survive a motion to dismiss. But as I noted, it is a slow process outside of bankruptcy. To take board riders as an example, that complaint was filed in October of 2020 the motion to dismiss decision took more than two years. That decision hit on October 17th of 2022. Uh, a debt obligation might even be, might mature, or the company might be in bankruptcy by the time you get a ruling even on a motion to dismiss, let alone a judgment on the merits. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why we have yet to see a ruling on the merits of any of these liability management exercises. Um, there have been relatively few federal court actions, uh, which I think is the result of the hurdles in diversity jurisdiction in order that these cases can be brought in federal court. They are mostly in state court, and in state court, they proceed very slowly. Inside of bankruptcy, as we saw in CERTA, and we also saw this in Revlon, and it's playing out today in, in CORA, um, cases move very quickly. There's going to be a decision on the merits um, very quickly. And, uh, and the, the, the risk 
that creditors face in litigating these issues inside bankruptcy, uh, I think, are compounded by the fact that there will be broader restructuring goals that the debtor has, including emerging quickly, uh, that will invariably influence the outcome of the case. So you mentioned in Cora, we're recording this on February 8th. Uh, as we speak, there's an ongoing trial in Incora in the Texas Bankruptcy Court where many of these questions are being asked once again. Uh, and who knows, maybe that may be a different outcome than Serda. But uh, there's clearly a ton of uncertainty here. But if you had to make a prediction about where things are headed, uh, what, would it, what would it be? Sure. So uh, we all, we all, of course, are watching the developments in Encora with with great interest in that, no doubt. Uh, if it does go to the merits uh, and result in a ruling from Judge Isger as opposed to a settlement, will be something that everybody will look at very closely. But I have, I guess, one specific observation and one more general observation about where things are headed. First, uh, with respect to implied covenant claims. Uh, and this harkens back to the CERTA court statement, the CERTA bankruptcy court statement that exposure to these transactions can be avoided through contract drafting. We are starting to see provisions in credit documents that are intended to explicitly prohibit certain liability management transactions. But we are seeing other deals with credit documents that, that do not include these provisions. So when it comes to claims for breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, I think in the future, it's going to be increasingly difficult for creditors to argue that a prohibition on an LME transaction is implied in a credit agreement when there are credit documents out there in the marketplace that explicitly pro prohibit these types of, of, of transactions. Uh, second, uh, looking back at, at CERTA, Board Riders, Trimark, and, and I guess others, including Bombardier, Mitel, and Cora, uh, contractual claims uh, survived a motion to dismiss. But suffice to say that from, from 2020 to the present, uh, and with perhaps uh, uh, an exception in the very near term within Cora, um, we have yet to see any judicial decisions that have caused the market to pump the brakes on these types of transactions. To the contrary, we're, we're seeing more and more aggressive and more and more creative uh, transactions out there. Things are, are arguably moving more in that direction. Take, for example, the recently reported um, Robert Shaw transactions. Um, back in, in May of 23, the company and certain of its lenders engaged in a liability management transaction. In addition to the incurrence of new money debt and the roll up of certain existing indebtedness, the transaction is notable in that it amended the documents to provide that only the failure to make an interest payment at maturity constituted an event of default, but not the failure of, uh, to make any prior interest payments. Certain lenders that were excluded from that transaction filed a complaint in November of 2023 challenging the transaction. The plaintiffs voluntarily dismissed that action without prejudice to refile in, uh, in February. But then in late December of 2023, another lawsuit was filed, 
this time by one of the parties that was a so-called favored lender who participated in the initial transaction. In that lawsuit, the claim was that the company and other defendants engaged in a sham transaction to further amend the credit documents in violation of its rights. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this credit agreement was that it contained an explicit blocker that prohibited amendments to authorize the incurrence of additional debt for purposes of influencing a voting threshold. And the argument was made that the defendants improperly attempted to circumvent that provision. Now, it's too soon to tell what's going to happen, but it, it's noticeable that we're now seeing uh, not only challenges to LME transactions, but in this case, uh, lawsuits arising from disputes between the favored lenders, um, and uh, that the inclusion of so-called blocker provisions in the credit documents may not may well not be a silver bullet for creditors that are trying to to protect themselves. So, looking forward, uh, if I had to make a prediction, I would say that at some point there will be a tipping point. Uh, that as companies work with creditors to become more and more aggressive regarding transactions where one group of creditors is favored over another, uh, at, at some point there may be a decision that causes uh, all of the parties involved in these to, to, to pause and to, to question whether things have started to go uh, too far. I think uh, before we get to that point, we will need uh, maybe even an appellate court decision uh, or some higher court authority that adopt some of the arguments that have been made um, at the lower court level, uh, or uh, potentially a bankruptcy court ruling, but on facts that are not too specific to that case and, and, and where the court adopts principles that are more generally applicable to, uh, to these types of transactions. Well, I think that's a good place to end our discussion on liability management transactions. Um, certainly covered a lot, but I, I did want to pivot to a different topic in the bankruptcy litigation space, which is mediation, effectively sort of encompassing many, if not all aspects of the case at times. Um, we've seen more and more of it in large and complex Chapter 11s. Uh, but I was wondering if you speak to how this development has impacted things and more specifically, maybe how it has impacted your work as a litigator. Sure. Um, so you are certainly correct that, that mediation is becoming more and more common in large Chapter 11 cases. Of course, it's, it's nothing new to observe that judges like consensus. Uh, I have yet to meet a judge that does not... Uh, like having an issue come off his or her busy docket. Uh, and so from my advantage point as a litigator, there are two obvious trends um, that have emerged over the last couple of years when it comes to uh, mediation in the large Chapter 11 cases. And the first is that um, it has now uh, in, in most jurisdictions become virtually automatic that when there is a mediation, it is going to be conducted by another sitting bankruptcy judge. Uh, again, I, I, I think that from the perspective of trying to get to more successful mediations, that is a welcome development. And I think it is a welcome development, both because the professionals that are involved in these cases are the ones that are going to appear in front of 
the same judges that are conducting the mediation again and again. But in addition, on the creditor side of the ledger, there are many institutions uh, whose business is to invest in distressed securities. And those institutions are repeat customers in the bankruptcy context. So they too will be facing those same judges again and again in other cases. And there's little doubt in my mind that therefore the presence of a sitting bankruptcy judge as the mediator does have a moderating influence on the behavior of, of both the parties and the professionals involved in these mediations. Uh, the second observation I would make is that there has been a discernible trend towards not just issue-specific mediation, like, for example, resolving a dispute concerning a dip or a 363 sale or resolving a specific adversary proceeding, uh, but instead global case mediation. Um, and it, it, we've seen this in a number of cases, Sears, um, Intel Sat, and a number of the mass tort cases such as Boy, Boy Scouts, Purdue, and Mallinckrodt. And again, uh, I'm not suggesting that this isn't a good thing uh, for a debtor to be able to emerge more quickly and to avoid uh, litigation that is invariably both time consuming and expensive uh, has obvious benefits for the estate as a whole. Uh, the, 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 the one observation that I would make, though, from a litigator's perspective is sometimes uh, you may find yourself in a position where you truly believe that you have the facts on your side, you have the law on your side, uh, that you are going to win, and what you really want is your day in court. Uh, but the pressures of a, a large Chapter 11 case um, result in the proverbial freight train moving speedily down the tracks and, and heading right into you. Uh, and in the context of a mediation, uh, often resulting in the conclusion that you really have no choice but to reach a suboptimal uh, settlement that certainly outside of bankruptcy you would not have entertained. But that um, is... Uh, certainly become a regular part of the bankruptcy process. Abid, when you enter mediation, are there any good rules of thumbs that you should give creditors, you know, investors, you know, that, that's my background. So I'm always thinking like an investor. When we're entering that room, you know, who are the guys that end up doing better than the other guys? It's not always the argument, but, you know, just any, any, any insights there, I think would be great for our listeners. Yeah. So Phil, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because I think it very much depends on who your mediator is. Right. Um, and uh, every mediator has a different style. Uh, and many of these mediations, uh, you know, there, there are bankruptcy judges that are more experienced in mediation and others that are, that are less experienced in mediation. So I would say uh, that it, it really does depend both on who the mediator is, as well as on um, the, the, the nature of the issue. So one thing that I would certainly look for is whether the issue that you happen to be mediating is one that can be carved out, if you will, from the overall urgency for the company to, uh, to emerge from Chapter 11. Is it an issue that if you, if you can't resolve it in mediation can be resolved 
post-emergence from bankruptcy in the form of a litigation trust or or uh, otherwise be dealt with after the the case is over because from an investor's perspective again if 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 your issue that you are seeking to litigate inside the chapter 11 cases one that is going to cause a meaningful delay in the company's ability to emerge from bankruptcy uh, you can expect that you will be under immense pressure uh, not only from the mediator but from the debtor and most often the debtor will will have a restructuring support agreement in place and and that usually will be with the secured creditors and so there will be pressure from all of the RSA parties to um, not trip any of the milestones that inevitably were negotiated as part of the RSA. Uh, and that will be, I think, the most difficult uh, place to be in the context of one of these mediations. Now, that's that's very important. I think we've we've seen cases where um, they remove themselves from that freight train by you know setting up a litigation trust or in a plan or something along those lines so that you know that if you have a great litigation claim you can pursue that separately it's not it's not tied to the exit of the company i i, I think you know listening to you it, it just reminds me how important it is to get good professional bankruptcy advice Abed, how, how did you even end up being a bankruptcy attorney. I, I think we've used up our time with you and I just wanted to kind of get, you know, maybe some of your history there. Sure. Well, Phil, I am more or less a lifer at Aiken. Uh, I became a bankruptcy litigator both by accident and by design due to the foresight of the financial restructuring partners here at Aiken. When I joined the firm, I was in our litigation group and I was actually doing antitrust litigation. A couple of years into my tenure and completely by accident, I had the opportunity to get involved in a bankruptcy case just as our restructuring practice was beginning to take off. I found myself in bankruptcy court in Delaware in a full-blown trial within a couple of weeks of starting work on the case, and I loved everything about it, most of all, the speed with which things moved. In my experience, the best litigators are the ones who really enjoy being on their feet in front of judges, arguing motions, examining witnesses, and taking depositions. And restructuring litigation more than any other area offers that opportunity in spades. And all in the context of endlessly changing capital markets, different industries each time, and with constantly evolving legal issues. Having really enjoyed that first taste of bankruptcy litigation, I then sought out opportunities to work on as many bankruptcy cases as I could. And within a few years, while I was still uh, at that point a mid-level associate, I asked the restructuring partners here at Aiken if I could join the restructuring group full-time as a litigator. Now, at the time, it was definitely not common for restructuring practice groups to have a litigator as part of the group. And in fact, and, and to me somewhat surprisingly, it's still not that common. But the restructuring partners at Aiken understood that litigation expertise is core to the restructuring advice that we offer our clients, both at the stage of analyzing alternatives, planning out of court transactions, and of course in court, whether that court happens to be a bankruptcy court or any other state or federal court that is addressing the myriad of restructuring related issues. Uh, restructuring litigation just isn't the same as other types of litigation. In addition to moving at the pace at which it does, 
the issues are not at all generic. In fact, our discussion of LME transactions today demonstrates that it really is a highly specialized area of the law. So look, it's been my good fortune to be part of a preeminent restructuring practice with a group of highly skilled partners who recognized early on the importance of having specialized bankruptcy litigators as a core part of the team. Well, it's it's been a wonderful experience hearing from you on all these liability management transactions, the, the, the thoughts on mediation, and we really appreciate you uh, joining us here. It, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. We now turn to that part of the program where Nagisa and Phil dig into the particulars of given distressed and bankruptcy situations. Nagisa, let's go ahead and start with you. And let's start with WeWork with uh, Mr. Adam Newman back in the news, uh, apparently looking to uh, take back over the firm he once founded. Sure, no. So there's definitely been some news reports lately about Adam Newman and Third Point possibly bidding for the company. That actually came, uh, that news came a day after a February 5th hearing where it became clear that the case's progress has been fairly limited and that there are now clear liquidity constraints um, that weren't really mentioned or brought up uh, early in the case. The, we were filed for bankruptcy early in November, obviously. Um, the case <clears throat> has obviously always been about landlord negotiations. Looking at the facts, we were entered Chapter 11 with a request to reject 70 leases. It since it requested to reject 24 more and has assumed seven. So we're still at around 400 leases that need to be rene- renegotiated. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's the progress clearly limited, right? So <clears throat> as far as today goes, I, I did want to kind of speak a little bit about the main legal issue now and one that pertains to the company's tactics, I guess you call it strong arm act tactics to get landlords to make concessions and to that negotiating table. Uh, the main one being uh, WeWork's attempts to withhold, not attempts, I mean, they are withholding post-petition rent in certain cases and questioning the applicability of section 365 D3 of the bankruptcy code that uh, pertains to post-petition rent obligations. Uh, There's a question now as to how far this litigation can go, how much it could accomplish as a delay tactic, perhaps to get this landlord to the table by so through this threat of not paying post-petition rent. And I think the answer is that it's not probably going to give WeWork a ton of leverage here. The bankruptcy court is fairly clear on the treatment of post-petition obligations, meaning post-petition rent is typically treated as a priority administrative claim that must be fully paid. It's likely that these tactics won't succeed in the long run, but I mean, honestly, they probably won't succeed in the short run either. So uh, we know that the court allows to extend performance uh, to the performance deadline on this obligation by 60 days following the bankruptcy filing date, but a debtor is generally obligated to perform uh, under the lease post-petition. Uh, and uh, there's a question as to what the standard is, unlike 
certain provisions under the code where they are subject to the business judgment standard, this this requirement is not. And I think we also have to think of the imbalance here. We have a clear understanding that the automatic stay establishes significant limitations on landlords. It doesn't allow them to terminate leases, refuse performance. And then we have WeWork here effectively questioning the application of Section 365 and their obligation to pay post-petition rent. And I think the court will probably make sure to avoid disparate treatment among the parties. Um, as far as where does it leave us and how Adam is back on the news, I think there are now clear liquidity constraints. There's a new plan on file, just filed February 4th, uh, that allows for a dip and a rights offering. Um, also, there's this threat of administrative insolvency, like this, this scary word here, as rent obligations pile up. I mean, to be clear, the sort of wait and see approach by WeWork with respect to these rent obligations doesn't increase the overall payments here. These rent payments will need to be paid in order to confirm, confirm the plan as administrative expenses. It's more of a matter of whether they get paid now as they go pursuant to the code or whether they get paid in the end of the case, but they will need to be paid eventually in order to confirm a Chapter 11 plan. Yeah, certainly the the lack of recovery in the commercial real estate space probably not helping things on there as well. But uh, maybe just staying with you and pivoting to a recent bankruptcy here, and that being uh, with the Brazilian airline Goal. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about Goal. I think Phil is may, may be able to talk about it more broadly, but uh, it, it's been a f- sort of very consensual first day. They had two hearings already. Um, the thing that jumped out at me as kind of the trickiest part that ended up be kind of resolved uh, was its dip. Um, it did draw initial concern from the court, and that concern dissipated very fairly quickly, but I think it's sort of interesting to talk about it. There's a proposed $950 million dip. Gold got access to $350 million on an interim basis on the first day. Uh, I'm calling it first day hearing. Um, so first, even before the dip was filed, the court wanted to know whether it contained any controversial features. And I think specifically what it had in mind here was what it was concerned was with the with an equity election feature that was present in LATAM uh, Airlines dip. This was a few years ago where LATAM, in the same bankruptcy court, by the way, refused, the LATAM court uh, refused to approve a dip loan that was provided by LATAM's pre-bankruptcy shareholders because it found that the agreement was a sub rosa uh, chapter 11 plan. So in other words, LATAM, pursuant to the dip, LATAM could elect to pay shareholder this loan uh, with discounted stock in lieu of cash, but it also was able to prevent the confirmation of any other plan, so any plan other than its own. Uh, that loan was later modified to remove the controversial feature, but I think that ruling provided enough warning against similar financial structures. So uh, Judge Glenn was concerned that he was going to potentially see similar features in, in the Gold's plan. It, it turned out that Gold's uh, dip didn't really contain any such features, and it was described numerous times as pretty much a middle, as middle of the road as it gets, I think, were the words. Uh, that said, it's a very expensive dip that didn't go unnoticed by the court. The court did express significant concern with that. I think to put things in the perspective on $950 million, 
over 15 months, I think we're looking at fees of over 25%. So pretty significant. Uh, but ultimately, it did get approved, I think, in a way, signaling to debtors that fees could survive most opposition, it seems. I mean, this was consensual in terms of the parties, but the only change that the dip ultimately um, underwent following the hearing was some added limitations and reporting structures surrounding uh, legal expenses. Uh, so pretty minor changes overall, given compared to what the court initially expressed concern with. Yeah, maybe I'll just pick up, um, you know, and, and maybe start with some of the basics. Uh, Gold is, you know, has a fleet of about 140 uh, seventh Boeing 737s. Uh, it was started about 2000, in the year 2000, 2001 uh, by the Constantino family. And in Brazil, they're set out to be a low cost carrier. Um, you know, fast forward, they've grown a lot. Uh, they went into the pandemic. Uh, they had some issues with the 737 MAX 8s. Um, uh, that, that kind of hurt them a little bit. But the pandemic was really devastating. It was devastating to all Latin American airlines because there was no government support. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was they they put together in one of their slide decks. Uh, in this country, in North America, we supported our airlines with $96 billion of financing. Uh, they virtually got none. And so a lot of this pandemic losses ended up being on their balance sheet. And so you saw some file immediately. Uh, Amianca is, you know, LATAM. Um, and, and some are now going through the process. And so I think, generally speaking, what we're going to see with this bankruptcy is the, co- the operational turnarounds there. The, the company is actually making more revenue than it did in 2019 on capacity that's just 14% shy of where it was in its peak year in 2019. So, uh, you know, you, you have good operations, EBITDA, which is really, I, I think of it as EBITDA because none of the rent expenses are, are included here. It's about a billion dollars. So you have to take a lot of financing costs out of that. Uh, it's at least over $500 million. And that's US dollars I'm talking, uh, although the company keeps its um, uh, currencies Brazilian. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you have a fundamental uh, operational turnaround, but the company has been starved of growth capital, like just to maintain its fleet and to uh, update its fleet. So it's a, it, it's going to be an interesting bankruptcy. Um, the the big the big uh, the big interesting thing to me is the capital structure. Um, in December of two thousand twenty one. Uh, Avianca exited bankruptcy. Uh, the lenders, the dip lenders in particular, owned uh, the equity along with the Creative family. Um, and what the Constantino family and the Creative family put together, um, Abra Group, uh, and that was in 2000. It was announced in 2022. I think it got formalized in 2023. Uh, and what you have there is you have. Uh, it's a holding company structure where those two families control the 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 decision making of both Goal and Avianca, um, and yet the economics all flow through to the Abra Group. 
Um, and so what's interesting here is they raised a lot of debt at Abra Group, and they did that through uh, a bond exchange of gold, um, about one and a half billion dollars, uh, about, I'd say about $400 million cash went into Abra and plus $1.1 billion of gold notes. And for that, they got secured notes at Abra. And so you have this multi-layer capital structure um, where, and this is where it gets interesting, is so the Abra Group invested, they, have, they are the biggest creditor of Goal, as well as the ultimate economic benefi- beneficiary of Goal's equity, uh, or at least 53% of it. And so you have, they're not necessarily caring if they get their money back from goal on the debt side or the equity side. Um, and and so I think that'll lend itself to some interesting dynamics with goals bankruptcy. Um, I think the unsecured debt, um, gener- generally speaking, I think the unsecured claims here are going to face an uphill battle. As with all reorganizations, it's, it's much about what you bring to the table after the company, you know, when the company exits. Uh, in terms of, and that could reflect in your recoveries for your old claims, or at least if you're involved, you want to see a company exit uh, healthily. Uh, a lot of times, that 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 leads to some forgiveness of those those old claims. But unsecured claims that don't bring much to the table, you know, when it reorganizes, uh, probably won't fare very well. That's typically your old unsecured notes here, and. Uh, Anyway, it's good. it's going to be a very interesting bankruptcy, um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I guess that's all we can really do. But uh, maybe Nagisa, back to you. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Encore. I know that's another name uh, that we've talked about a number of times here. What's what's the latest on their situation? Yeah, so we discussed liability management at length with. Uh, a bit earlier, so I'm not going to be redundant, but I do want to put some of the detail. I do, I do want to talk about some of the detail in, on, in Cora's ongoing trial. Uh, we are recording this on February 8th, so the trial is, is going on as we speak, actually. Um, to go back uh, a few weeks uh, in a setback for Incora, most of the essential contract questions surrounding the permissibility of its 2022 transaction remain unanswered uh, uh, following that uh, bankruptcy court's January ruling. Uh, the principal factual disputer is whether this 2022 up-tier deal was intended to be a single whole transaction, and that will hinge on the party's intention, and that's what's being litigated as we speak effectively. So non-participating note holders under the 2024 and 2026 indentures, and Langer Mays, which is a a non-participating note holder for the unsecured 2027 notes, want to collapse the amendments because... Uh, they say that they were structured to achieve this single purpose. In court, on the other hand, defending the transaction because each step was distinct, says that uh, it, it says that the transaction was allowed because each individual step was was allowed under the indentures. Um, so, d- 
kind of what this is about. In 2022, uh, in core, I received this requ- the required majority vote to pursue an initial change of the indentures, to uh, which authorized a $250 million uh, additional unsecured notes. Uh, including those new notes in the tally, Incora then went and obtained more than two-thirds of the votes needed to release the collateral under the original indentures, making those previously secured note unsecured. Uh, Where we stand today, on February 8th, I think after numerous days of hearings, I think the question here will be one of remedies at the end of the day. I think there's hinting, maybe even heavy hinting here, that Judge Isger has concerns but how unfair this transaction ultimately was to the unsecured, to the excluded note holders, to the non-participating note holders, and that he believes that those that participated uh, likely did so with bankruptcy in mind, uh, in a way effectively protecting themselves uh, from a Chapter 11 filing and leaving this non-participating note holders out in the cold. So, But at the same time, there's also a sense here that the debtor really believed they needed this money, perhaps, and that they had no other avenues for for getting it. So much, I think, will come down as to uh, the what do you do with that? Like, how do you balance those two? And the court has asked. The part is now whether the law the law impose. There's several questions here at play, but one of some of the main ones has been this uh, question is whether the law imposes a duty on a party that's trying to avoid bankruptcy to actually not take away another party's right. Uh, we are left with a question as to how far Section 510 of the Bankruptcy Code goes. 510 is a subordination provision of the code. It also addresses equitable remedies. So equitable subordination, equitable liens, are those available in the situation? Is the situation extreme enough to warrant equitable subordination in some form? In a in an uncommon procedural move, the court has asked the parties to address these questions in the coming days as the evidentially portion of the trial is still ongoing. Um, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to get any answers from the parties. I think Judge Isger has mentioned numerous times that uh, there just may not be precedent for this, that he may have to, in the end of the day, uh, write new law, maybe not a position he loves to be in, but that's sort of where we may be left here. Um, I think Generally speaking, where we stand today, I think it's fair to say that this whole exercise, whether it's a summary judgment motion or the trial, has been a boost for J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, and uh, other note holders excluded from the exchange. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we're sort of going to see in the days and weeks ahead where we land. Interesting. So still a lot to watch and, and keep an eye out for there. Uh, Phil, let's maybe finish with you and and what uh, the latest might or might not be with our friends over at uh, Diamond Sports. Diamond Sports, always fascinating. Uh, So we've actually had a lot of news. And, you know, one of the big uh, avenues for recovery that the unsecured notes and even secured notes had was uh, their litigation with Sinclair. And that got settled. Um, It's they announced a five hundred million dollar. Uh, settlement, or maybe just under that, uh, and it's uh, that is that that is a huge deal. And you know, it, I think it was, it, I think it was one of those results. And they always say it's a good result if each side is a little bit angry, or maybe a lot angry. Um, but uh, so so that'll be a real benefit to the estate. Um, and they also have, you know, they they've they've 
gone to a reorganization plan now. And and so one of the things that was interesting is that this is with Amazon support. Amazon is going to be the uh, where they're going to put their DTC product. So realize Diamond Sports, if it reorganizes, will have you know the traditional linear carriage fee model that they already they they've had and you know really was how they borrowed ten billion dollars off of that business. Uh, they make money via advertising as well. And then they were starting this new DTC product. And initially, it was going to be their own app that people would be able to have on their phone, and they'd be paying something like $20 a month. Um, Now, I think what this will probably be is it'll be an add-on on Amazon Prime. And uh, that's at least the concept. The numbers that they look like their financial projections are thrown out there is about on average, about $10 a month uh, that people would have to pay for an add-on to see their local team in their local region. Remember, all these rights are just locally. Um, And they have, unsurprisingly, very high growth estimates for subscribers. Um, But we've seen this before, and they haven't come close to meeting the the numbers that they threw out there in their most conservative case back in 2022. And so I think uh, a lot of skepticism is warranted here, whether they will actually grow the way they think that they are, uh, at least their projections indicated. And when you take a closer look at this deal, you realize Amazon um, might have ulterior motives in in this arrangement. Sure, they're going to be housing um, this DTC product. But they also, with their $115 million convertible investment, which is, uh, you know, kind of small for the kind of money that Diamond Sports throws out on an annual basis, which is, you know, in in rights fee, it was approaching pre-bankruptcy $2 billion. Um, But with this $115 million convertible investment, they will have a first lien on uh, uh, Diamond's 20% equity stake in Yes Network. And that's who recall that's the Yankees and my beloved Nets uh, that are uh, covered there. But yeah, the Nets need a little bit more help than being on yes right now. Yeah, you're not kidding. Um, but beyond that, so, so, and it also offers them a call option feature where they can actually uh, purchase uh, yes, the yes network. So, you know, there, there's a lot of things about this. Uh, you know, and it's really just a term sheet out. There's no dis- there's no actual plan filed. There's no disclosure statement. Um, and yet they're also marketing a dip. And the dip financing is very interesting and, 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 and should raise a lot of eyebrows. And actually, the unsecured uh, committee has already ob- uh, objected to it for basically the election procedures. But basically, the 450 going going in is really just going to pay out uh, the first lien tranche to a degree. And then it's also, uh, and then it's going to be really kind of a six month dip the way it's setting up. If you can get the litigation proceeds in, um, anyway, there, there, there's a lot there. It's always interesting, but you know, one of the observations that we made in a recent piece of research is that it's not clear that unsecured creditors who are not willing to put in new money in this, uh, dip election, uh, 
it they might have been better off with the runout strategy. And it's not clear to me that the runout strategy was found to be feasible or that uh, it would even work. So I, there's going to be plenty of more uh, coming in this name, um, especially I especially expect to hear from the leagues uh, because whereas the plan that the runout had was they would be, uh, you know, they, they basically could cut off the any relationship with Diamond past a year. Uh, this will wed them to, because all of the sports rights uh, contracts are going to be assumed here uh, for for the length of those contracts. And for Major League Baseball, that's uh, a very, could be a very long time. So anyway, more to come. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. All I can say is 10 bucks a month to watch the local team sounds like a little bit steep, uh, given where the rest of the streaming world is, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But with that, I wanted to thank uh, both Nagisa and Phil, and uh, of course, once again, uh, Abid Qureshi. Until next time, this has been State of Distressed Debt. 